Hello, this is Dr. Peng Shenqian, the editor chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the November 2018 issue of the Heart Rhythm. The featured article this month is titled "Stroke in Patients with Cardiovascular Implantable Electronic Device Infection Undergoing Transvenous Lead Removal" by Lee et al. from Mayo Clinic, Arizona. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.hardrhythmjournal.com website. The authors performed a retrospective analysis of all patients undergoing transvenous lead removal for CIED infection from all three tertiary referral centers of the Mayo Clinic. A total of 774 patients were analyzed. The stroke rate in this cohort was 1.9%. A patent foramen ovale was identified in, uh, in 46.7% of patients with stroke, compared to only 12.9% of patients without stroke. The authors conclude that in patients with CIED infection undergoing transvenous lead removal. The presence of PFO, especially with the right-sided vegetation and the right-to-left shunting, was associated with an increased risk of stroke. This finding suggests that PFO screening before transvenous lead removal warrants meticulous attention. Because stroke can be a devastating complication in patients with CIED infection. These findings are clinically important. However, this study is limited by the retrospective study design. It is also unclear if pre-procedural screen, screening for PFO and any potential intervention that could be performed can actually reduce the rate of stroke. Next article is titled "Intermittent Anticoagulation Guided by Continuous Atrial Fibrillation Burden Monitoring Using Dual Chamber Pacemakers and Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators" by Waxedor from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston, Massachusetts. The authors hypothesize that continuous rhythm assessment with pacemakers or ICDs. And use of direct-acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, may allow anticoagulation only around the time of AF episodes, reducing bleeding without increasing thromboembolic risk compared with constant DOAC use. They studied 48 patients monitored for a, for a total of uh, 14,800 and. Uh, Uh, 26 days. Patients used DOAC for 3,763 days, representing a 75% reduction in anticoagulation time compared to chronic administration. There was no thromboembolic events. The authors conclude that among patients with rare AF episodes and low to moderate stroke risk. Pacemaker or ICD-guided DOAC administration is feasible and decreases anticoagulant utilization by 75%. This pilot study suggests that device-guided DOAC administration 
may prove to be a viable alternative to chronic anticoagulation. A larger clinical trial will be needed to confirm these conclusions. Next up is a paper titled Seasonal Variation in the Risk of Ischemic Stroke in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Liao et al. from Taipei Veterans General Hospital, Taipei, Taiwan. This study used the National Health Insurance Research Database in Taiwan. From 2000 to 2012, a total of 289,000 AF patients were enrolled, and 35,000 experienced ischemic stroke after mean follow-up of three years. The author found that the highest instance of ischemic stroke was observed in winter. Compared with the summer period, the risk of ischemic stroke increased by 10% in spring and by 19% in winter. Lower average temperatures were significantly associated with an increased risk of ischemic stroke. The authors conclude that a seasonal variation of instance of ischemic stroke in AF patients was observed with an increased risk of stroke on days with an average temperature of less than 20 degrees C. This paper raises an interesting question of whether there is an association between temperature and stroke. However, a study using an administrative database has many limitations. The mechanism by which stroke may be associated with cold temperature remain unknown. Misra et al. from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine wrote the following article titled Field of View Mapping Casters Quantified by Electrogram Associations with Radius of Myocardial Attenuation on Contrast Enhanced Cardiac Computed Tomography. The authors studied 15 patients with post-infarct VT who underwent castor ablation with pre-procedural contrast-enhanced cardiac CT. Electroanatomic maps were registered to contrast-enhanced cardiac CT and myocardial attenuation surrounding each endocardial point was measured at radial 5, 10, and 15 millimeters. The authors found a significant association between bipolar and unipolar voltage with myocardial attenuation at all radii. For unipolar voltage, the best model fit was at an analysis radius of 15 mm regardless of mapping caster used. For bipolar voltage, the best model fit was at an analysis radius of 15 mm for points acquired with a conventional ablation caster. In contrast, the best model fit for points acquired with a multipolar mapping caster was at an analysis radius of 5 mm. Smaller electrodes may provide improved spatial resolution for definition of myocardial substrate for VT ablation. These findings are important because they will allow operators to focus on identifying regions of the myocardium susceptible for VT ablations. A limitation is that the authors do not yet have outcomes data to confirm the clinical importance of these findings on VT ablation. The next, next paper is titled Safety and Efficacy of Castor Ablation of Ventricular Arrhythmias with Partition Origin via a Systematic Direct Approach from the Aortic Sinus Cusp 
written by Wei et al. from Fuwai Hospital, Beijing, China. They also studied 21 consecutive patients with ventricular arrhythmias of parhesian origin. Ablation was preferentially performed within the aortic sinus cusps in all patients. The results show successful ablation in 17 of 21 or 81% of the cases. In the remaining four patients, RF application was performed in the target site of the RV septum around the his bundle region, and the clinical ventricular arrhythmias were eliminated in two of the four of those patients. During mean follow-up of three years, one patient out of the 19 acutely successful cases had recurrent arrhythmias. The authors conclude that castor ablation of ventricular arrhythmias originating originating from the parahesian area via a direct approach from aortic sinus cusps may be safe and effective in most unselected patients. This paper, paper reminds me of a paper by Zhang et al. from Wuhan, China, published in January 2018 issue of HeartRhythm. In that paper, the authors reported that mapping and ablation of pulmonary sinus cusps eliminated 80% of unselected idiopathic RVOT-type ventricular arrhythmias with favorable midterm effectiveness. While it is, uh, it is known for years that ventricular arrhythmia can originate from aortic sinus cusps and pulmonary sinus cusps, they were thought to be unusual. When mapping and ablation in the ventricles fail to eliminate those arrhythmias, then mapping in the cusps may be considered. These two papers argue for the opposite approach, that is, ablation in the cusps first before ablating in the ventricular sites. It is unclear if these findings are particular to Chinese patients or are generally applicable to these ventricular arrhythmias elsewhere in the world. I'm sure more people will soon report their experience with these approaches. Next up is the paper titled Electrophysiological Features and Radiofrequency Castor Ablation of Supraventricular Tachycardia in Patients with Persistent Left Superior Vena Cava, written by Wum et al. from Yangsai University College of Medicine, Seoul, Korea. The authors studied 37 patients with and 510 patients without persistent left superior vena cava who underwent an electrophysiology study for SVT. In patients with persistent left SVC, 40 tachycardias were induced. They included AVNRT, AVRT, and the focal atrial tachycardia. Among patients with AVNRT, 47% of those with persistent left SVC had a slow pathway in the coronary sinus, as compared with only 4% in patients without persistent SVC. In patients with a left accessory pathway, the number of RF castor ablation attempts and the recurrence were lower in great cardiac vein group than the left superior vena cava group. The authors conclude that a slow pathway within the coronary sinus is common in patients with AVNRT and the persistent left SVC. It is useful to place a CS caster in a great cardiac vein in patients with a left accessory pathway and a persistent left SVC. In most patients, 
the embryonic left SVC becomes the vein of Marshall. Both the vein of Marshall and the persistent left SVC are known to be sources of atrial fibrillation and may serve as conduits for accessory pathway conduction. This current manuscript extends the observations to slow AV nodal pathways. The next article is protamine to activate diet vascular hemostasis after castrobulation of atrial fibrillation, a randomized controlled trial by Ganem et al. from University of Michigan. They studied 150 patients who underwent castrobulation of atrial fibrillation or left atrial flutter. Patients were randomized to receive post-procedural protamine or to the control group. The results showed that the maximum ACT during castor ablation averaged 359 in both groups. However, time to hemostasis was 123 minutes in the protamine group, which was significantly shorter than the 260 minutes in the control group. Time to ambulation was also significantly shorter in the protamine group than control group. There was no differences in the rates of major or minor vascular access complications or thromboembolic events. The authors conclude that protamine expedites vascular hemostasis and time to ambulation by about three hours without an increase in the risk of vascular or thromboembolic complications. A limitation of this study is that it was not powered to detect significant reductions in major vascular or thromboembolic complications. However, reduction of the time to ambulation alone may be beneficial to patients undergoing ablation. Next up is a manuscript written by Shou Hansen et al. from Aarhus University Hospital, Denmark. The title is Time until diagnosis of clinical events with different remote monitoring systems in implantable cardioverter defibrillator patients. The authors study 1802 consecutive patients followed with remote monitoring from 2014 to 2016. Devices made by Altronic, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, and St. Jude were represented in the study. There were 3,472 events. Proportion of events acknowledged within 24 hours ranged from 18 to 72% among the four different manufacturers, with median times from detection to acknowledgement ranging from 13 to 222 hours. Variation in time to acknowledgement of ventricular tachyarrhythmia episodes not treated with shock therapy was the primary cause for the difference between manufacturers. The author states that early detection of those non-treated episodes are clinically important. However, this study is limited by the retrospective study design, whether or not delay in reporting non-treated ventricular arrhythmia events negatively affected the patient outcomes in this patient cohort remains unclear. Next up is simultaneous traction from above and below during lead extraction by Shaler et al. from Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. 
They also studied 15 patients referred for transvenous lead extraction of an ICD lead. Average lead dwell time was 8 years. Simultaneous traction showed greater leftward fluoroscopic shift compared to traction from above, created greater separation between the lead and SVC wall upon intracardic echo imaging and maintained a more parallel relationship of the lead with SVC wall. The authors conclude that in patients presenting for transvenous lead extraction, simultaneous traction results in increased separation and a more parallel alignment of the lead and SVC wall, allowing the sheath to be better oriented in the desired cleavage plane. This improved sheath alignment is particularly critical when powered sheaths are to be used. The authors include detailed illustrations in the manuscript to provide practical guidance in performing simultaneous traction. Edelstein et al. from University of Pittsburgh wrote the next article titled Scar Burden, Not Intraventricular Conduction Delay Pattern, is associated with outcomes in ischemic cardiomyopathy patients receiving cardiac resynchronization therapy. The authors analyzed 393 consecutive ischemic cardiomyopathy patients with left ventricular ejection fraction less than or equal to 35%, QRS duration of greater than 120 milliseconds, and LBBB or non-specific IVCD who underwent single photon emission computed tomography, myocardial perfusion imaging, and a CRT defibrillator implant. They found that non-specific IVCD is associated with greater scar burden and narrower baseline QRS duration than LBBB. LVEF improved less in patients with IVCD versus LBBB, but only scar burden and not QRS morphology or duration was associated with LVEF increase of greater than or equal to 5%. During 39 months of follow-up, IVCD was associated with shorter survival free from transplant and or VAT and a shorter time to first appropriate device shock. Scar burden, but not QRS morphology, was independently associated with these outcomes on multivariable analysis. The authors conclude that IVCD is associated with greater scar burden than LBBB in ischemic cardiomyopathy CRT defibrillator recipients. Scar burden, not QRS pattern, is independently associated with adverse clinical outcomes. This study further supports the need to look beyond LBBB as a main criterion for CRT implantation. In addition, it provides an important addition to the literature by integrating imaging measures with detailed clinical characteristics. Next up is an article titled Adherence to 2016 European Society of Cardiology Guidelines Predicts Outcomes in a Large Real-World Population of Heart Failure Patients Requiring Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy. The paper was written by Stabal et al., Clinica Mediterranea, Napoli, Italy. 
The authors collected data on 930 consecutive patients from the CRT-MORE registry. The primary endpoint was a composite of death and heart failure hospitalization. They included 563 patients who met class 1 indications, 145 who met class 2A, 108 who met class 2B, and 114 who met class 3 indications. After a median follow-up of a thousand days, they found that the time to the endpoint was longer among patients with class 1 indication. Adherence to class 1 was associated with an absolute LV ejection fraction increase of greater than 5 points and an LV end-diastole volume decrease of greater than or equal to 15%. The authors conclude that about 60% of patients underwent the implantation according to a 2016 European Heart Failure Guidelines Class 1 indication and that adherence to Class 1 indications was associated with a lower death and heart failure hospitalization rate and the superior LV reverse remodeling. These findings reaffirm the importance of guideline compliance in CRT therapy. The next paper is titled Reduced Left Ventricular Mechanical Dispersion in Heart Failure Patients Undergoing Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy is Associated with Superior Long-Term Outcome written by Vander Bill et al. from Leiden University Medical Center, the Netherlands. Clinical echocardiographic and ventricular arrhythmia data were analyzed from an ongoing registry of heart failure recipients of CRT. They included 1,185 patients. Among them, 29% died during a median follow-up of 55 months. Patients with LV mechanical dispersion of less than 84 milliseconds at 6 months post-CRT had lower event rates compared to those with LV mechanical dispersion greater than 84 milliseconds. On multivariate analysis, greater left ventricular mechanical dispersion at 6 months after CRT was independently associated with an increased risk of mortality. The authors conclude that larger LV mechanical dispersion at six months after CRT is independently associated with all-cause mortality and ventricular arrhythmias. Therefore, echocardiographic left ventricular mechanical dispersion may be valuable in identifying patients who remain at high mortality risk after CRT implantation. A limitation is that these data were obtained six months after implant. No data are available from those who died earlier than six months. Mar et al. from University of Louisville, Kentucky, wrote the following article titled Cost-Effectiveness Analysis of Magnetic Resonance Imaging, Condition Pacemaker Implantation. Insights from a multicenter study and implications in the current era. The incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, or ICER, was calculated as a sum of the total incremental cost of implanting an MRI conditional pacemaker versus a conventional pacemaker and the cost of MRI scans divided by the utility of MRI scans in terms of quality-adjusted life years gained. 
the projected percentage of patients receiving MR scans at 11 years was 58%, yielding an ICER of 74,221 per quality adjusted life years. The authors conclude that MR conditional pacemaker implantation is cost-effective over the lifespan of the pacemaker based on projected usage of MRI. The most common benchmark for cost-effectiveness is renal dialysis, which is currently estimated to cost about 100000 per quality-adjusted life years in the United States. This benchmark may not be applicable to countries that do not have government-funded dialysis programs. Next up is the electrophysiological effects of nicotinic and electrical stimulation of intrinsic cardiac ganglia in the absence of extrinsic autonomic nerves in rabbit heart by Alan et al. from University of Leicester, United Kingdom. The authors applied nicotinic or electrical stimulation at discrete sites of intrinsic cardiac nerve plexus in the Langendorf-perfused rabbit heart. Stimulation within all ganglia produced either bradycardia tachycardia or a biphasic bradytachycardia. Neurons immunoreactive only to choline acetylesterase or tyrosine hydroxylase or NNOS were con consistently located within the limits of the hilum and at roots of right cranial and right pulmonary veins. Among them, choline acetyltransferase uh, immunoresponsive neurons were most abundant. The authors conclude that stimulation of intrinsic ganglia, shown to be phenotypic complexity but predominantly of cholinergic nature, indicates that clusters of neurons are capable of independent selective effects of cardiac electrophysiology, therefore providing a potential therapeutic target for the prevention and treatment of cardiac disease. A new finding of the study is a characterization of distribution of NNOS or neuron nitric oxide uh, synthase neurons. NNOS is the enzyme responsible for the synthesis of nitric oxide, which is an important signaling uh, molecule. Exploration of the physiology of these NNOS neurons will need further study. The next article is titled The Application of Kinomic Array Analysis to Screen for Altered Kinases, kinases in Atrial Fibrillation Remodeling by Measuring et al. from University of Groningen, the Netherlands. The authors employ kinomic uh, profiling to identify kinases altered in AF remodeling using atrial tissue from a canine tachypacing AF model. They found that pacing to tachycardia induced changes in activity of 50 kinases. Among them, 40 of these changes were prevented by geranial-geranial acetone treatment, which protects the atria against tachypacing-induced atrial remodeling. The authors conclude that contrasting kinomic array analysis of control and treated subjects offers a versatile tool to identify kinases altered in atrial remodeling due to tachypacing. 
ultimately, pharmacological targeting, uh, targeting of altered kinases may offer novel therapeutic possibilities to treat clinical atrial fibrillation. Genomic profiling refers to the determination of global kinase activity in a specimen and is distinct from genomic and proteomic methods because it determines changes in biological activity, not just the presence of a gene trans uh, transcript or protein. Broader adaptation of these methods in uh, research may help us better understand the mechanism of AF and its treatment. Next up is association of fibrotic remodeling and cytokines, chemokines content in epicardial adipose tissue with atrial myocardial fibrosis in patients with atrial fibrillation by Abe et al. from Oita University, Japan. The authors obtained left atrial appendage sampling from 59 consecutive AF patients during cardiovascular surgery. Histology revealed that the severity of fibrotic remodeling, remodeling of epicardial adipose tissue was associated with LA myocardial fibrosis. <coughs> Immunohistochemical and electron microscopic findings revealed that fibrotic remodeling of epicardial adipose tissue was associated with infiltration of macrophages and myofibroblasts. The total collagen in the LA myocardium was positively correlated with pro-inflammatory and pro-fibrotic cytokines and chemokines. This study demonstrated that fibrotic remodeling, cytokines and chemokines in peri-left atrial epicardial adipose tissue were associated with atrial myocardial fibrosis as a substrate of AF. Hypoxia-inducible hypoxia factor 1-alpha and angiopoietin-like uh, protein 2 may be involved in these processes. These results provide new insights into the association between epicardial adipose tissue and atrial fibrillation. The study is limited by the sample size and the absence of specimens from normal healthy people for analysis. Richard et al. from ProMedica Cardiology in Toledo, Ohio, wrote the following article titled The Addition or Mini Ventilation to Rate Responsive Pacing Improve Heart Rate Score More Than Accelerometer Alone. <coughs> the heart rate score is a percent of all beats in the predominant 10%, uh, 10 uh, BPM bin. Heart rate score of greater than 70% 70 per, uh, 70 predicts risk of mobility in patients with ICDs and, and identifies patients who have survival benefit with DDDR versus DDD pacing. The authors analyze the data from the LIFE study, which is a prospective randomized pacemaker study comparing accelerometer meter to dual sensor rate responsive pacing. The dual sensor includes both accelerometer and minute ventilation sensors. Among 501 randomized patients, heart rate score of greater than or equal to 70% during DDT pacing occurred in 43% of patients at baseline. In these, heart rate score decreased by 14% after DDDR programming. 
No differences were detected between the two randomized sensor-based groups at baseline. Dual sensor programming reduced heart rate score substantially more than the accelerometer sensor alone. The authors conclude that heart rate score improved with DDDR programming in pacemaker patients with high heart rate score during DDD pacing. Dual sensors improved heart rate score more than accelerometer alone. While promising, this programming approach needs to be investigated prospectively in a pacemaker outcomes trial. In addition to the original articles I've discussed, this issue of the journal also publishes an unknown of the month article on wide and narrow QRS complex tachycardia with four different cycle lengths, a Josephson and Williams ECG titled Peculiar ECG after an intracardiac intervention in a 41-year-old woman, four EP News articles and two letters to editors. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Shen Chen.